0: Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. My name is Francisco. My guest today is Sherman Tylowski. He's the founder of the George Washington Institute and host of Friends and Fellow Citizens podcast and an aspiring statesman. Can't wait to get started. Hello, Sonoma, and hello, Sherman. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. How are you today?
1: Hello, Francisco. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: You've done so many exciting things. Uh, George Washington plays a significant role in your life at the moment. As I mentioned, you founded the George Washington Institute and you host a podcast called Friends and Fellow Citizens, which quotes the opening line of our first president's farewell address. What first drew you to Washington as a subject of interest and then as the main feature of your current media journey?
1: Well, thank you so much. And uh, first of all, uh, I'm really excited for this opportunity to speak to your audience today. You know Washington has always been the most interesting president, my favorite president of all time. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter what number of president we have in the future, but uh, I've always I'm always going to feel that Washington is my favorite president. And I think the reason why is because he had so many opportunities to become like a monarch. You know, that was hmm. such a common type of government for you know, hundreds or thousands of years. And the fact that he chose not to go down that path and to choose a more conservative or smaller term if you like called president really set the precedent for all the presidents that have come afterwards i knew i had to throw in a little bit of a pun there (laughs) there you go Um, but he really exemplified leadership obviously amidst a lot of opposition in the uk and he was one to actually lose a lot of battles but come up victorious in many ways um losing a lot of battles in New York didn't wasn't going to stop him and certainly didn't stop him in Valley Forge, didn't stop him when he became the first president in 1789. And he, when he became president, I think a lot of us want to feel that he had a, just a wonderful time. He was the most popular person in the room, you know, just breezed through two terms as president. Well, that unfortunately was not the case. He actually <laughs> made a number of mistakes. There are a number of things that happened that he didn't expect, including the feud between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, which really set the stage, unfortunately, for a lot of partisanship for years and years. And I wanted to capture not only the excellence of the leadership that Washington exhibited, but also show that he was a human being as well, and that there were things that he did right and things that he didn't do so well. And by combining that with some of those principles of his farewell address, which is largely forgotten, unfortunately, but it's uh, it's been a document that f- essentially lays the foundation for his vision for the country, but also have kind of a way of saying, well, this is, these are the things that I hope that future presidents and the f- future Americans will keep in mind. And so that became a bit of a guiding light. And I try to use those principles in virtually any kind of issue because every single American issue, everything that we discuss as a country when it comes to political issues, societal issues, we have to remember that past and that foundation and to know that if we were living those times we will want the country to obviously not be the same as it was back in 1789. So how do we use those principles to apply them to the issues that we care about today while also ensuring that we we keep together as a country, we promote civility, promote some kind of national unity among us, and be able to forge solutions to problems that are bigger than any one individual here in the country.
0: That's so well put, especially considering the fact that George Washington had a farewell address at all, was up for debate. I mean, it wasn't, there was, like you said, no precedent for it, because he was the first, uh, and he set many precedents during his time. So. The idea of the friends and fellow citizens podcast is to moderate civil discussions about current events and connect American history with contemporary issues. In your intro, you say patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values to define America, fascinating stories and talks from American loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Obviously you do it much better than I do, but (laughs) how did you choose those (laughs) foci? And what do you hope your listeners take away from your show overall?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I'll preface this by talking a little bit about how the podcast started because it relates a lot to those principles. I got the idea. Yeah. I got the idea of a podcast when I was talking with a friend of mine. We were speaking about, I believe it was Joe Rogan's podcast or Jocko Willings' podcast, two, two famous podcasts, two of the most popular podcasts out there. And my friend brought up the idea saying, you know, Sherman, you should really do a podcast and i said it's like well why, why are you saying that like I, I i didn't even have time to process you know making a pro- podcast never really thought of it i mean i thought it was a good way to listen to something while you're doing something else kind of like baseball i'm a baseball fan so listening to the radio was a, a big thing for me but then I, I started to think about it and i had a lot of trouble with this idea initially but then i told my parents i told my friends i said i'm going to do it now the big problem was what am I gonna do? My podcast song. <laughs> <laughs> kind of important to set a podcast, and I went through all kinds of names. And I remember that reading a book by uh, John Avalos. He's a, a historian and writer. He wrote a book about Washington's farewell address, and this mm. was a book for some club that I did in the previous semester. And I thought to myself, I thought it was a great work but I felt like I wanted to bring those principles out even more to more contemporary issues, to foreign policy, to discussions about the future of the family structure in America. These kinds of issues really matter too, and go way beyond just the historical context. Because I know that a lot of my friends, my family, they're not historians. So to be able to bring these values to the principles or to or to the issues nowadays we need to have that bridge between 1789 and 2022 and for the show it's very much based on those principles and for every interview or solo episode that we do the, the audience generally is not going to know what subject is going to come out but they know that there's going to be some washington in it they know that there's going to be some of those values of patriotism of faith national unity education civility because those things are more present than maybe we like to think. You know, a lot of times, I'm not just saying everyone else is myself included, but we we often want to talk about issues or discuss issues that can be very centered on tribalism. You know, sometimes we like mm-hmm. to feel we're in this camp or that camp, but then we take a step back and see the forest from the trees, and we see that there's actually a lot more we have in common. So when we speak about foreign policy or about societal issues, at the very end of our episodes, we try to tie those back in into Washington. Remember that where we live and the country we live in would not be possible without the founders. As flawed as they were, they did a lot of amazing things that were unprecedented in that time period. And to be able to honor those who have made a lot of sacrifices, uh, not perfect, but who did so much for our country, um, I felt that it was necessary to bring that honor or bring some kind of tradition of recognizing the past, informing the present so that we can have a much brighter future.
0: Mm, I like that connection to the past, and it it runs it's kind of an undercurrent in all your episodes. The topics have included many things, but public transportation's rough ride through the pandemic, caring for American veterans, uh, talking about Seward, a secretary of state who saved the union, and to me, which was cool, was one episode called Fighting with Tenacity, the Spirit of Japanese American Patriots during World War II, because I listened to that episode while I was in Washington, D.C. I went to school there for three years, and I discovered a new monument to uh, Japanese Americans, right there in the nation's capital so i'm curious how do you select the topics to dive into there's so many and what does it take to craft an episode
1: that's a great question the first process really when it comes to selecting the topics and the episodes really arrange a lot of doing as much research as i can on the internet and it can be tough some some people have never done a podcast episode others have a Mm -hmm. lot more experience what i try to look for though is what makes them stand out as a person as well, rather than just the issue, because the issues are very broad and apply to all kinds of people, including the citizenry of the United States and of other countries. But it's really about how that person can maybe channel that through their personality or through their own unique experiences. Uh, One quick example is I, I contacted someone. an upcoming episode hasn't been released yet as of the recording of this episode but uh, they had told me that she had a bit of a busy schedule and they weren't sure if she was going to be able to come on so they suggested someone else and while i highly respected that other alternative that they recommended i told the organization civics organization i said i thank you so much for your email for your message Um, however i would like to highlight these elements of this particular individual who works in the same organization, but has a very unique career path. They've oftentimes right. become freelancers. You know, there are people who decided, you know, I'm going to start something my own. And that kind of says a lot about what they want to do and what sort of topics they want to cover. And so, so it was actually a good email, I guess. I guess I'm good at you know, one thing, emails, <laughs> so it, it turned out turned out really well. And they, they said that I know we'll be able to accommodate it would have to be a little bit later in the year, but it was no problem for me because I record episodes well in advance. But, um, uh, in terms of the, uh, the actual process of the uh, uh, interviews and the guests, a lot of it really comes down to, uh, creating a good foundation for the episode. So in, in fact, I always say uh, using the ice, or a glacier sort of metaphor. You you kind of, the final product is like the top of the iceberg and then Mm. the 90, 95% is down below. And I would say that was maybe the same thing for the interview episode. So when I interact with these guests, I always present some kind of framework for them. And it's a bit of a secret sauce here, but um, I I like to put together a framework so that they get an idea of what that episode is gonna be like and they can add any notes or anything they like to add in the episode too. So it, it balances out so that they know, you know, kind of like Google maps, they know they need to drive from New York to LA they don't need to know every single turn or every every kind of interstate they need to get onto until we get to that point. And so by giving that direction, and then throughout the episode guiding with those questions, and you obviously do a fantastic job Francisco with your questions too, especially on, that idea of when you ask those good questions, you get a lot of interesting answers and you get a lot of conversation. So that's really kind of what it's like in a nutshell. It's not always easy because people have different schedules. However, I, I have to say I, this podcast would not be possible without others. You know, My friends, my family, and every single guest as well as their staff. Too, some, sometimes they have an executive assistant or someone who helps with the logistics. Uh, It it really takes a village, and I could not be more grateful for the episodes that we're able to put together with these interviews.
0: Well, the cool back end of what you're saying is that uh, you're creating episodes, but you're also creating community. And you've been doing this for about 1.5 years. You're almost at your 100th episode. How has putting out uh, this show expanded your political and historical knowledge? Or more generally, what have you learned from your year and a half of podcasting?
1: Oh, that's the million dollar question, right? And I I would say the biggest thing I've learned from this podcast, I'll start with that question. The biggest thing I've learned is the importance of communication. And more broadly, it's b- being active on communication. Uh, the reason why I say that is because when I put together a solo episode, the content is one thing, uh, but I don't generally create the history right like if i were to do right. so I mean, william seward right the, the history is right there the information is out there but it's about how do you take that information condense it down to something tangible so that someone from 2022 can look back and say i i i can think of something to use with this episode or with this piece of information and so it's it's a, lot, a bit of a filtering system but not filtering out content it's more of filtering out the way that something is said. And I have felt like I've learned a lot about how to work with people using a bit more of imagery of stories, which obviously is a very big part of the foundation of your podcast, Francisco, which is using stories because stories connect with people's emotions and they kind of put themselves in that space. And so with this sort of experience of the last one and a half years, I've, I've done things that have worked and have not worked. And it's really interesting to see how, generally speaking, from what I've seen, the things that are not producing enough of that storytelling or that imagery generally is the most ineffective I've seen. And it's always a constant exercise. You know, I try to uh, improve on the, the storytelling, add more stories. Obviously, every new episode that comes out is yet another story or set of stories. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's it, on the technical side, though, it's a great way to learn how to persuade. Uh, persuasion, I think, is is an art and a science in itself. And in terms of the the things that I've learned from you know, American history and politics, one thing I've uh, understood is that people, for the most part, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I ask people to connect with those values, with those interview episodes, the most common principle that is being cited, because I give them a choice, you know, you can pick one or all six Mm. of them. The Mm -hmm. most commonly cited one that people want more in society is civility. And I had some kind of idea, but I didn't really see that as a tangible result. Now, looking back at almost 100 episodes, I can tell you that there's every single person, every single person we've had on the podcast and people who have listened to the episodes, they really want more civility. We we are living in very, very polarizing times. It's not the worst times ever compared to, the, say, the Civil War, <laughs> uh, which was, you know, that was way out of whack. It's pretty polarizing. <laughs> right, exactly. But I feel like the most important thing I've learned is the people's appetite for civility. And I realized that I could at least play some, some kind of part in it by bringing people from different perspectives to one podcast show, to be able to coalesce around principles of Washington's farewell address, even when we have disagreements on whom we voted for in the 2020 presidential election. It's those kinds of bonding experiences that really define the messaging and the philosophy of a show. But I also believe that it is indicative of what we need in this country and that is we need more civilian. we need people to we need people to say hello to one another you know so totally that's the, that's really the essence of what i've learned over the last one and a half plus years
0: well you mentioned two things that exactly lead into the next question sherman it's like you're reading my mind and the first thing is storytelling and in the george washington institute description you say that learning through storytelling is the best way to preserve protect and pass on the founding principles of american leadership and democracy to future generations. And I don't wanna give away all of your secret sauce, but you do emphasize the importance of civility and going to know each other. As a Zoom generation and working remotely, we know what that's like. If some people have started jobs and never met anybody in the company. And so, without giving too much away, one of your episodes is called Congress. What's your schedule? Why the congressional calendar matters. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sneak peek of the storytelling that you do that combines the facts of the congressional calendar with the story of civility in America.
1: This what really leads to first to uh, my experience and why I'm very passionate about Congress and about civility. I have had the wonderful opportunity to intern for two house members. And, but they're not just house, two house members; they're one Democrat and one Republican. And I purposely wanted to intern for those two members because, number one, I respected their character. I've read a lot about the kinds of people they are, or the kinds of the ways that they carry themselves. And so I have a lot of respect for these two gentlemen. But most importantly, I wanted to learn why, why it is that Congress can be so polarized, and by being in the Capitol building itself by talking to staffers, by doing that research on history and the history of the, the Senate chamber, one of the most notable stories was the beating of you know, Charles Sumner on the Senate floor when a, a Confederate sympathizer, essentially, Preston Brooks, a congressman, literally beat up a senator on the Senate floor. I mean, that's and and we can and when the capitol really reopens people can still go back into the old senate chamber and see see where that that actual location was and, and by combining work experiences that I've had working with amazing staff members on the hill these people work ridiculously hard i mean it's really hard <laughs> to put into words honestly like the amount of caffeine and the amount of of sugar that you probably need to get through the, the day of meetings and votes and whatnot uh, it's really extraordinary and regards to the episode on you know the schedule i really feel that despite the amazing people that do work at, in the capitol building i'm not seeing and i've personally and many staffers and members have noticed that both parties members of both parties are physically not seeing each other much anymore you know nowadays with uh, with flying with technology, where as you mentioned, Francisco, we're able to sit on a computer or sit on a screen to, to do a virtual meeting. And while that might be being useful for certain circumstances, when that be- unfortunately becomes a bit more normalized for too long, people lose that human touch. And it's been happening before COVID as well. What happens is that the, 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 there are, there are Democrat lunches and the Republican lunches, so there's virtually no no opportunity for members to really mingle unless they're voting or unless you have a buddy or two from the other side, but there just really aren't that many opportunities to mingle. And not, not as Democrats, not as Republicans, but as American representatives working for the national interest. And by seeing that deficit of a human touch and person-to-person interaction, while it's obviously been a very difficult couple years, and I'm glad that the things are normalizing, generally speaking, we have not, I think, put into context the polarization that's happening in our country, and we haven't really revolutionized some sort of new way of preserving the traditions of the Senate and of the House, but also finding new ways for members to do trips together or to just work on bills
0: together to talk to
1: one another again. That's something that people wanna see and it's not really happening as much as we want to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it's so embedded into their literal schedules, it's incredible to me that you're able to point out this tangible reason for perhaps a lapse in civility, which is literally because the calendar of uh, representatives from both sides of the aisle does not overlap enough for them to just be able to chat and have lunch or like you said, go on foreign trips, visit foreign countries. So that, that's really cool that you're able to point that, that all out. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back on Hello, Sonoma with Sherman Tyloski. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here again with my guest, Sherman Tyloski. We were just talking about his incredible podcast called Friends and Fellow Citizens, a reference to... George Washington's farewell address. Sherman's also the founder of the George Washington Institute, which is a premier civics organization that delivers and applies the lessons and stories from America's past for people today to learn and enjoy. You say that you envision an American citizenry that is guided by historical, timeless founding principles of republicanism and democratic leadership for a more unified, prosperous, and civil United States of America. Now there are tons of institutes and organizations out there that many other young people in your position would have simply joined. What made you wanna create your own institute?
1: Absolutely. My thinking when I first came up with the idea of the George Washington Institute, which just to first recognize the podcast that I've created. I've had a wonderful time. I still love making episodes. So I still wanted to keep that element. And I wanted to create something that was even bit broader than just Friends and Fellow Citizens. You know, it's a wonderful title, I think, and encompasses a lot of great things under it. But the George Washington Institute goes a little bit further and goes into principal leadership, which kind of ties a bit into what I mentioned earlier about making something tangible. So what I mean by Mm -hmm. that is, let's just say, you know, I do an episode, I'll use an example here. I've got a series called the Sacred Honor Series, which goes through all the signers in order from John Hancock all the way to the very end, which I believe is George Walton of Georgia. So he'll have to wait his turn for many, many years. But uh, uh, it's it's all about not just learning about a signer. Right. Because it's not necessarily really a history lesson because history lesson really delves a lot more into what had happened before. And we do a lot of that. But the real question is, how do we take what John Hancock did or what Roger Sherman advocated or what uh, Thomas Jefferson advocated when he was signing the, the Constitution? What sort of things can we take from those gentlemen, from those signers and from the people before us and apply them to leadership today? What does leadership mean nowadays in 2022 and beyond? And the answer, I believe, is within the principles. Because if you don't have a good foundation, you know, it's kind of like building a house. If you don't have a foundation, you you got a a house that collapses. And so by having that strong foundation, everything then gets built up and built up into a robust structure, if done right. And so the point of the Institute is to use some of those stories from Washington's presidency, from the signers, uh, even some of the content that we've discussed, uh, on the podcast and to take those on and to bring those messages out to even more audiences. So for example, I recently did a, uh, talk on the SS Jeremiah O'Brien, which is a wonderful Liberty class ship based in San Francisco yeah. Francisco. You pretty, certainly know uh, that ship pretty well, uh, but it's a, a wonderful vessel. And I was able to find a, a connection between the ship and the namesake of a school that I went to, the Bush School of Government and Public Service. And what I did in that speech is trying to bring out those leadership qualities of working with people on different sides of the aisle, or working together as a unit, in this case of the SS Jeremiah Bryan, towards a a common goal, a common enemy, fighting against the Nazis. And so the George Washington Institute really is taking that bigger step forward of more than just speaking about these issues and deliver, but now delivering this message to young people who want to make a difference, but to do so not just with stories, but also do with political realities. I call it realities because there's a lot of little things that, you know, through experience and through reading or through studies, it can be kind of hard to discern with a lot of frenziness that's happening in our politics. Absolutely. Bring that realistic element to people and to, and teach them ways that they can institute change especially in local government or state government Uh, that i think is going to really bring about a lot of good civic civic change over the years
0: well so you mentioned the ss jeremiah and your father was the pilot for that ship so i'm glad you mentioned that because uh you have some really cool background. You clearly love the United States and have a deep reverence and respect for its values and history. Your father, as we mentioned, Captain Gregory, Gregory Tyloski, is a master mariner, ship captain, and former Navy officer with roots in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Your mother, Dr. Sally Wei, is a friend of the show. Originally from Taiwan, she's a tea a doctor of musical arts, a classical pianist, and director of the local Buddhist Tzu Chi Foundation, which does humanitarian work throughout the world. You grew up speaking Mandarin and English and making frequent visits between the United States and Taiwan. Wow, that's, that's an American story if I've ever heard one, but how has your bicultural upbringing affected your perspective on what it means to be an American?
1: Sure, I wanna first say that so much of my life, my entire life is because of the hard work that my parents have and done for me and for the family for many generations to come, I believe. They instilled in me values of respect, of hard work, of having ethics and morals. Um, I'll start with my father's side. You know, I loved hearing some of those stories from my great grandparents who immigrated to Ellis Island and just like you know, it was a gateway wow. to America. And I remember standing in that hall in, in on Ellis Island, the, the grand hall where all those people came. And you just look around, it's, it's like a bit of a simple building. And yet you just imagine yourself, wow, think yeah. about all the families who have had their lives changed so much for the better in a lot of ways, just to come to a country that they didn't even know really much about then let alone the language or the, the, the culture and to be able to stay or, or to be able to stand in that hall, Um, makes me think a lot about the importance of recognizing or honoring one's roots. And my great-grandparents were working class in New York. My Tylowski side of the family, my dad's side of the family, were in New York for decades. And New York is still a bit of a special place for me every time I go back. I've not been back in a while, but to think about how they came from Eastern Europe, which was plagued by disease, by conflict, by religious conflict was a big one too. Um, just so many so many t- tough, s- tough circumstances and conditions. And for them to leave that all with very little and to come to the United States for a better life, it really is the American dream and the American story. And on my mother's side, my mom is a first generation American growing up in Taiwan, she didn't speak much English until the uh, until the 90s or so right around when my parents met and to know that she has worked so hard to become a piano teacher and to be able to not only bring her heritage to America but to also really take in America and she really is uh, the uh, Taiwanese American that I'm so proud of and for my parents to have those kinds of unique stories live in living in a culture where I'm embracing America but also recognizing that one can live in a household with my a Christian father and a Buddhist mother. I mean in in the very essence, you know, just taking one example here, they've really taught me all those commonalities. In fact, I've seen that there're just so many more commonalities between those two, the, the two religions that I grew up with and to be able to see that there's there's the inherent goodness in people. To know that those same ideas of compassion, of respect towards one another—it doesn't matter what almost what denomination, as long as we can have those common values, we can we can succeed as individuals. And so by taking in this unique American lifestyle, uh, that I uh, would not be able to really put into words, honestly, just how big of a deal it's become, how it's shaped who I am. Um, it's really a, a true blessing. It's it's a true American blessing for me. And I I would not train, trade it for anything. And so, so much of what I've done and what I intend to do, I always think back on my parents and my ancestors who uh, maybe not, didn't envision me to start something specifically called the George Washington <laughs> Institute, but knew that maybe in, in the future, uh, there'll be some good positive change. And uh, I, I just couldn't ask for more.
0: That's so exciting and cool that you're able to distill those experiences into yours and to kind of see how they influence you in so many different ways. Besides your parents who have given you such great international perspective, you also have had a really interesting and international educational background. You went to a French-American international school. Then you went to college at King's College London, where you majored in politics and got your BA in liberal arts. Then you went to the Bush School of Government, as you mentioned, which is located at Texas A&M University, where you got your Masters of International Affairs with a specialty in national security and diplomacy. So you've got this really cool thing: you've got French American International School, then King's College in London, so a European view, then Texas, which is—I mean, it's Texas; it's a whole—it's its own whole thing. Can you talk us uh, walk us through your reasoning for? going to each of these places and how, and the different influences that they have on your philosophy about our country and just, and generally.
1: When I was younger, I not only grew up with English, I grew up speaking Mandarin, as you mentioned earlier. And I didn't really know why I was learning Mandarin other than really learning how to communicate with my, my mother's parents, my grandparents on my mom's side, uh, who did not speak much English. And so it was more of a practical way of being able to communicate with some members of the family. But then I realized that it was more than just a language. When I started learning French, which was kind of that other European language that I endeavored, uh, even Latin. I I didn't learn Latin for a couple of years, and while I couldn't really practice it much outside of the classroom, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but it was. It was, I think at that moment when I learned, was learning Latin and learning all the roots of the words that we use in English and even in French and other Germanic languages made, it made me appreciate a lot of what of these other languages have to offer and to spark a curiosity of some kind of travel, to be able to travel outside the United States even just for a little bit, to see the world from the outside in or see the U.S. from the outside in rather than just from the inside out. And that's what I intended to do in my high school and in junior year, I decided to apply for some UK schools. And I was very grateful to have had the opportunity to study at King's College London, which is named after George IV, who was the son of the king that we like to despise and we understandably should despise. So George IV, not not as bad in my book <laughs> because <laughs> of the school, but, but um, it was a a unique experience because I was in the middle of another country's kind of political drama or saga of Brexit. So it was very interesting to just sit back. At first, I remember I was so tempted to just say, oh, here's what I think. But I decided to take a step back a little bit, just hear both sides, hear the Leave campaign, hear the Remain campaign, hear what this party says or that party says. And using that example, I've seen so many cases where oftentimes I'm the only American in that room. And to be able to hear from someone who's never been to the United States, that really, that kind of makes you think about how big of a world we live in. I mean, we do live in a <laughs> yeah. small world in a lot of ways, but, but it's, it, it, it's big in the sense that there's so many other frontiers and there's so many different perspectives, whether or not I agree with them is another thing. But to be in that same city, a global city of London, and to soak that all in. It was an absolutely amazing experience. The other aspect too, which is really to come back to and come back to the United States. I've always had a passion for American history. That was really the first passion I had, and then kind of morphed into politics once I got a bit more understanding of what politics is. It's politics is not necessarily a kid friendly sort of uh, sort of arena here <laughs> in a lot of ways. But once I got a bit more exposed to that, I knew that I had a wonderful three years in the UK, but it was time for me to be back here in the states to start making connections, to uh, get to know the homeland, get to know the country, and to enjoy a lot of amazing American food, right? Uh, but uh, which, I mean, I mean, you can find you, you can find McDonald's and KFC and all those places in London, but uh, to to be be here, I never actually really travel as much around the country. I've been to I've been to the East Coast a few times, but this was an opportunity for me to go to a part of America that I really never imagined that I would go at least for a couple of years. And I decided to take that leap of faith and I would just I went to Texas A and M University, which is also my father's alma mater. Uh, it is a wonderful university and a wonderful institution that it too is built on values of tradition, of respect, and of helping others of thinking about others first. And the Bush School of Government and Public Service is not only a school, I think it's a monument or memorial to President George H.W. Bush, who regardless of people's politics, I think many, many people respected him on both sides of the aisle. And that's not something that you see a whole lot. It really ties back into that civility aspect, which is how do you portray yourself as someone with a set of principles or ideas, but do so you know, without going after people all the time? And that's really has been the essence of public service. President Bush always said that public service is a noble calling. It's something that you feel inside. You don't really know what exactly it is or why you have this, inkling to work in DC or Carson City or Sacramento or wherever, but you just know that you want to serve other people. That energy, that philosophy drove me to go to the Bush School to be able to learn from all those amazing professors and classmates who gave you that value of knowledge by sharing where they were coming from and to be able to learn from practitioners, people who have been you know, undercover in the CIA or have solved counterterrorism right, yeah. cases, just to be in that environment is experience like none other, and I'll I'll never forget. I I'll, I can at least tell people that I was a part of a a, a a counterintelligence simulation. I'll just I'll just leave it there because you know the CIA is pretty broad. I'll kind of imitate that sort of ambiguity <laughs> there. <laughs> but it was a simulation, but nonetheless it was. It was just an example of just how many unique activities you could do in that school and I want to bring those values and that experience, that classroom experience, to my future career in civics and to get people engaged again, you know, engaged in and when I say engaged, I mean engaged in the issues together. Um, Mm -hmm. And so combining all those experiences, you know, the languages, the schools, going to different countries not to mention i did rack up quite a few frequent flyer miles which you know (laughs) is going to rack up after three years of flying across the atlantic yeah yeah. (laughs) but amidst all that it's it's wonderful to be back in the states obviously for a number of years and to be able to take all these ideas and these experiences through the podcast and the george washington institute and beyond
0: well I think you've just exemplified the multifaceted experiences that you've had across the Atlantic, as you mentioned in Texas, which, you know, it's is as I mentioned, is its own kind of place in in the United States. If you haven't been there, um, it has its own identity. It has its own part. You can't say you can't live in Northern California and think that you understand Texas. But one little moment that I think. Highlights your experiences is that you won what's called the Principals Global Leadership Award uh, while you're at King's College London, which aims to develop distinctive leadership skills in service to society in a global context. And your interest in leadership has continued. It, you're currently writing a book and conducting research on some of America's most historic episodes of presidential leadership. So, given your experience, what qualities do you think an effective leader? in 2022 and beyond should have?
1: That's a great question. I think the first quality or trait that a leader has to have is humility. A leader is not the only person in an organization, unless you're a sole proprietor, I guess. But even with that, (laughs) you you literally, you have to learn how to do things to guide people, but without giving credit to yourself. I mean, that really is the essence. That's why I mentioned that the podcast really just cannot be possible without other people. You know, it's the show was created by me. The title was created by me, but that that's only just the the tip of the iceberg. There's all that other element, all the other elements of that podcast could not be possible without other people, including the listeners and the patron supporters and all the people who consume that every single day because at the end i'm not recording for myself to listen i'm recording for other people and so (laughs) to to think about leadership i think the number one thing is we have to have some kind of humility taking ourselves out of something and to make it a product that encompasses other people and to do so in a way that recognizes everyone's credit i'm someone who for whatever reason, I I have to make sure that every single person gets credit, gets recognized for whatever credit they get or whatever they've done. It's just something that kind of comes natural to me. The second leadership quality goes back to communication, knowing how to effectively communicate with your different team members or the people whom you are working with. Uh, a lot of the times communication is not really necessarily what you're saying or what you're you're speaking about. But it's really about how you put together the different factions or, or the different kind of ways to you know, you'll work, work on some kind of activity together. And um, it's, it's going it takes a lot of effort, I think, to be able to communicate especially with people's different schedules and different ways of doing things. But like with the guests, with the podcasts that I do with friends and fellow citizens, I've never met these people in person. I don't know what their habits are usually like. Uh, however, I do my best to uh, work with them to be flexible and to just make sure that you, you send that email and being clear about the directions or clear about the recording instructions. Even something as simple as that, I think is a way to practice leadership. And I would say the, the third and final trait for leadership and that is uh, principles and principles and what i mean is that you need to not let external factors or other people change the essence of who you are especially when you have those values of morals and ethics because so easily we want to please everybody well i remember when i was younger i read this story it was actually Aesop's fables. My father put purchased a book. It was about the animals and about all kinds of different things. Uh, and the the number one lesson I took from this one story that was about leadership is had something to do with like rats or something like like something, <laughs> you know it was like it was just you know like a bunch of mice. It was like essentially a mice leader and not know and that mice leader was not knowing what that leadership position was going to be like, you thought it was going to be really easy. And the simple quote lesson there was, the more honor, the more danger. You know, when you're in a leadership position, there's going to be people Mm -hmm. trying to, you feel that you're taking something from them or that that you're trying to, you know, try to suppress their ideas or whatever it is that they think. But you just have to really try to cancel that noise out as much as you can, except constructive criticism. That's one thing, right, which is, listening to other people, listening to family and friends, listening to even people you might not agree with a lot, which is an exercise that I try every single day. Uh, At the same time though, it's very important that you, you keep onto those values and keep on to those qualities that put you in that position, but to not to just look at it as a way to, you know, condescend or to, yell at right. people or anything like that. I always think that a leadership position is always temporary because there's always going to be someone else who has to take over. and so when you see it and from that perspective you you take you take yourself out of that a little bit and you you focus on what needs to be done not just for yourself but most importantly for other people and for your country and for the the place you live, the place you love. Um, it's, it's always a work in progress. You know, the qualities that I've mentioned, they're not exhaustive, but I would say those three, three things are very, very critical to understanding what a leader does and why a leader leads and doesn't manage. No man, man, leaders are not managers, but leaders have to be the ones to guide that path forward for others to follow.
0: Well, thank you for guiding us forward here today, Sherman, and in all of your your endeavors so far. We're going to have to take another quick break, but we'll be right back on Hello, Sonoma. Hello, Sonoma. We're back with my guest, Sherman Tyloski. Sherman, we were just talking about the qualities of an effective leader, and given you're a great answer. I want to talk about some of your professional experiences in the past and the different things you've learned from it. So you've done everything from be a mailroom intern at a law firm. You've been an intern with the Santa Rosa City Council member, Julie Combs, in Sonoma County. You did a research internship for something called Project 29, which kind of tackles foreign policy in the Asian Pacific region. And you interned at the US Capitol. We'll talk about that a little later but you've had such varied experiences. What kinds of lessons did you learn and how did they shape your perspective on all levels of American society?
1: My big takeaway from all the internships that you mentioned, as well as some of the other things that I've been able to do with Suji Foundation, which is the charity organization that I have gotten involved with for many years. The number one thing I'd say is that it's very important to, to be able to understand and and be in the position even temporarily in all levels of an organization. And the reason why I say is because an internship is not as much of a work experience. I mean, I usually, I usually put that as a professional work experience and I encourage people to do so, but I've always learned that it's actually a learning experience. And I thought to myself, I said, well, what's, what exactly is the difference here? I mean, can't you work and learn, but, and it's true, you can work and learn. However, Working is more of you know, being be able to meet some qualifications and having some skills for something. Whereas learning is going in somewhere like an internship and soaking it all in instead of putting out your opinions or your ideas for something. And that I thought was an incredibly important element of my work because it, it kind of changes your mindset or your mentality on the positions that you take on. So, for example, one of my favorite internships was the one with, uh, with City Council Member Julie Combs, and she was a wonderful person to work with. Regardless of what people have regards to agreements or disagreements, uh, she is a, a person who loved her position as council member, she loved the constituents that she represented, and I learned so much about you know, who she was and why it's important to value city government. You know, that, uh, we get so carried away with Washington DC and I, I get it, it's a, it's a big place and there's, I mean, the, the monuments and the museums distract us from the other things, you know, the press and, the, and the, what's happening in the White House and the US Capitol. But as the saying goes, politics, all politics is local. And so when Mm -hmm. I got into that position of being an intern and taking notes at a meeting, I realized that that contact that you have with someone from city government or someone representing the federal government, but coming to Sonoma County, it's a very big deal to to listen in and to soak it all in as an intern. As someone who at that point really, and even to some degree now, you take a lot in from what you learn in school, and it's important, but it's about having your hands, getting your hands dirty and to go out in the field and network with people, introduce yourself. Those are the qualities that you need for every single kind of uh, works position. It doesn't necessarily lock you in into government or into a think tank. Rather, it locks you in into many different molds. Uh, one of the things that I, I've taken away over the last several years is that you know, I think goals are very important. We should have goals, life goals or goals for the day. But I don't think those should be central anymore. I think the, the better way of what I found is to is to not be goals oriented, but be systems oriented, meaning that hmm. instead of working towards one thing, you know, and let's just say you want to be a doctor, right? Or in this case, a politician or someone who wants to work in public service. The goals-oriented, from my perspective, through the internships would have been, okay, my goal is to be a representative of this county or of this district. Every single day, you're, you're not a representative, you're, you're kind of having that feeling like, okay, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet. But if you think of systems, when you combine writing skills, speaking skills, networking skills, editing skills, all you don't have to be the best person in the world at editing or proofreading or writing or speaking. But if you combine those tools together, then you can really create an interesting palette that you can, which you can be ready for anything in life. That I think is the big takeaway for internships, which is these are all very different in terms of the nature of the work, everything from US, China, foreign policy, to working in the capital, which we'll obviously get a little bit into. The The, the common thread between those has been what are the skills that I need to work on so that anything that comes up in life, I'm more than ready to tackle it. I'm ready. I'm more than ready to try this new gig or try this new project. Now, that I think is the point of an internship and uh, whether it was at, in Santa Rosa or in Washington, DC, or really at home for the project 2049, it was still during COVID. So I was at home, but I guess you could say my working mind was in Arlington, Virginia. I guess you could mm-hmm. cross the country pretty quickly, uh, but it's 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 all about taking it as an intern, not not as necessarily as a working employee, because you know you're not hired yet at that point. And it's more about what can you take away from this experience so that you can network and get to know others, so you can get to the next level in your career.
0: Well, speaking of being across the country and. Very quickly and getting to the next level of your career. As you mentioned, you worked with Congress people on both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. Uh, Part of your responsibilities included leading tours in 2019, showing people the art and the sculptures, and really getting to know the Capitol. That included uh, finding out about the secret Dunkin' Donuts in the halls of Congress and all the federal buildings, which you (laughs) called a major networking opportunity, which is pretty cool. And then on the flip side of that, you were in the Capitol complex during the January 6th insurrection. So, I mean, talk about being in the heart of all this action. You really got to see the Capitol for everything that it is, uh, from the, from the day-to-day work to the, to the, to the, what can we even call it? I mean, that live political scene right outside for those of us, for, for those listeners who have never been to the Capitol or who don't know that much about on the Hill, what are some unexpected things the average American might not know about, uh, that iconic place in American history and the icon- iconic buildings themselves.
1: Absolutely. I'll start with a bit of a... By comparison.
0: the way, yeah. sorry to interject, but I hope that uh, the listeners will know that Sherman gives a whole episodes dedicated to uh, the January 6th insurrection, so go check those out on his website.
1: Uh, absolutely, yes. I, I put together a one-year anniversary reflection episode, so Uh, Thank you so much, Francisco, for mentioning that. In terms of the experiences that I've had, I'll start with a short story. We mentioned the tours, and that was one of my favorite parts of the Capitol Hill intern experience. Uh, A part of the experience, unfortunately, that has been temporarily put on hold over the last couple of years. So anyone who's interned on the Hill has not had the opportunity to show uh, the American people around the building, which is... You know understandably it was the pandemic but nevertheless it's it was one of my favorite parts and i was very very grateful to have had the opportunity in 2019 to do it for the congressman's office and i remember one of the tours my very first tour i was you know, a little nervous but i still knew my way around the building there's a lot of the little corners and hallways that you have to Remember to navigate, getting lost is certainly a reality in that part of the, the complex, just in the Capitol Dome, in the Capitol Complex itself. And when you're running errands, you, you can ask people around, but it's it's like I need to kind of know where I'm going here because yeah. it can be very much of a maze. <laughs> so uh, I I would just uh, tell people that. Just watch out for the bit of a maze sort of structure in the Capitol. But I remember giving a tour and I was showing them a an old part of the Capitol building. And I told them that in this, through this very entrance, British soldiers stormed the then uh, that Capitol building to burn down, burn it down and to destroy the books and the lib- First Library of Congress. And that I said the, in that tour, because it was part of the program, that that was the uh, last time that the Capitol was breached. In 2022, we can't say that anymore you know that that's that's kind of what had shocked me a lot you know throughout that experience uh, on january 6th and i won't go as much into detail on in this episode obviously there's a lot more details and on my podcast but the main thing was that i couldn't get that image out of my head of the rotunda instead of being filled with tourists which should have been the norm where people admiring that building where just staffers and members, you doing, going about their business. All of a sudden that whole world has changed. Um, the metaphor I use is that it's the reason why I would say that a lot of people are wondering about the interest level of you know, the investigations that are happening. Well, I'm not going to go into too much into detail, but it's kind of like the reaction that one would take if someone broke into your house. You know, even when someone breaks into your house, you're gonna do everything you can to figure out what had happened what is going on what sort of things did I not leave the door locked did I not do this and I've I felt a bit like that on that day it was it was the longest day in Congress for me actually and uh, I didn't even actually work that much I only worked like two or three hours before the whole mayhem started so it wasn't the most productive day either <laughs> so for me but I I think a lot about on that day, um, and I, I've done talks, I've done interviews to on other platforms. I'm going to be doing more talks later this year, and I, I share about my story in, in the most nonpartisan way because I want people to see the value of our legislature, our national legislature, as many of the flaws it has. It's a very, very important institution that we we don't give enough credit to or that we don't maybe respect much as much maybe as the White House. I tell that story to people because I want people to visit the Capitol and 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 be able to appreciate the building a little bit more. I also want people to think about the words and the actions that one takes in the political scene. You know, everyone gets very riled up, I, I see, you know, on all kinds of issues, you know, whether it's on abortion or the economy or immigration or whatnot. But I feel like we've lost that kind of emergency break in our minds of you know, holding back on what we say on social media or what we tell people or how we express our views. And through this, this time when I was in Congress for both of the times I was entering in 2019 and in 2021, I've learned that Congress is... Is in itself a bureaucracy, but it's one that I think, just like the entire country needs leadership. You need leadership to know how to get bills on the floor. Um, I can't. I always tell people when I when I speak about civics, is that it's really hard to get things done in Washington D.C. <laughs> it's really, like even renaming a post office, which happens yeah. quite a bit. Um, it's not as easy as people think um, there's just because you're dealing with essentially if you're a member in the house You've got 534 people who think that they're the most important person in the building And so or I, I should say in Congress because I also includes the Senate so 435 in the house hundred in the Senate When you when you're in that kind of world you learn a bit about okay I really love I want to make change. I want to get this bill passed But it takes a lot of patience it takes a lot of lobbying it takes a lot of getting to know the right people sometimes it's luck sometimes it's because of the polling in your district sometimes it's an invasion in ukraine that shakes things up those are the kinds of realities that uh, one gets through in dc and having that opportunity to learn from the staffers uh, the people who work tirelessly I knew you were gonna mention Dunkin' Donuts. I didn't know you were gonna mention it that early. Uh, I, I was gonna, i was so close to men- being the being the first one to mention it. But, <laughs> um, but you know that I—I I, I ran the Dunkin' Donuts in that Longworth Building, not because I have—I I wonder how Dunkin' Donuts can be is so is so um you know present in all these government buildings. It Kind of makes you wonder what the contracts are like. But yeah. it also. But what's amazing is that that little Duncan in the Longworth House office building, imagine how many staffers, how many people are meeting to make connections and to form coalitions or to at least at the very minimum, get to know one another or to get some adrenaline into your system if you're a member or your staffer. And uh, that is a very fundamental block for Washington DC. And my professional experience I think largely has been understand the power of networking. You know, the, that, be, that ability to meet someone for the very first time, sometimes you all you do is send an email, you send a cold email to a staffer or someone, you don't know that person, but you meet one-on-one over a coffee because food goes well with almost everything. And you, yeah. you build a connection or that you, you you get a bit of a leg up maybe if you want to go into, into government or into whatever organization. Interning on the Hill is, and uh, is a privilege like no other. I've I highly encourage people, whether you're a listener, or whether you know someone who wants to intern on the Hill, I highly encourage people to search for a member. It doesn't have to be a member of your district necessarily. It can be someone from from another district, depending on depending on what office you're applying to. But I highly encourage people to. Uh, apply for this opportunity when you can because it is just an amazing experience. Um, learning from people who are you know, a lot smarter than me and who've worked so hard and to get to know Congress a little bit better. And I just, I, I highly encourage people to give it a shot and to also be be a bit open-minded whether or not uh, an opportunity works out by reading a bit more about what Congress is up to and communicating with your own citizens about the issues that matter, this is what our foundation in democracy works. It's, it's when we communicate, when we get out of our bubbles and we when we uh, think about in the past when people didn't have communicated in modern technology, they used to have to meet at a meeting house or at a church somewhere, that congregation with I think about Congress as the congregation of all these different interests of these different representatives. That really is so much of the essence of what our country is built on.
0: That's so special that you were able to have those experiences and to build connections and to really be there to 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 see them happen informally, informally, informally at the Dunkin' Donuts and at coffee places. And <laughs> as you mentioned, that's that's where a lot of those those agreements and coalitions can be made is not through necessarily uh, government acts, but through informal meetings. So we mentioned your interest in government and your interest in politics, and you started at a young age. As a matter of fact, you gave a TED talk about seven years ago, a TEDx talk about time management and, and time called Once Upon a Time. You gave the analogy of how we look at time we often look at it as kind of infinite as kind as young people like you and I you know we're under 30 uh, but how important it is to look at it as finite and to really appreciate it to learn from the past seize the present plan for the future when you're you know 16 your father asked you, he said, what is your dream? And he said, your reply was, my dream is to save Detroit. It's to save Newark, to save places that have fallen away from the American dream and to affect some positive change in our country from a government leadership perspective. So as I mentioned, Sherman, you're a young man, among other things, you call yourself an aspiring statesman. What kind of impact would you like to have on our, on our country or whichever state you choose to represent?
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the question, Francisco. And I am so grateful for all the people in my life who have contributed to what I'm able to do nowadays. I would say that's the, the biggest thing. I chose the word statesman because I view that term as a good way to indicate someone who does what's best for institutions and for, for communities across the country. I want to really learn what it's like to govern and through my internship experiences and whatnot. However, I want to be able to go into a conversation and to leave and hope that people will say, you know what, I like, I like this, what he said about this, or I didn't agree with this. Even despite our disagreements, uh, I hope that we've had some kind of mutual respect and that's what I really want to bring to politics today, which is, I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of potential out there, not, not just myself, but potential in all kinds of states. Every single state, think about it, every single state, every single locality needs to have amazing people. There's not one person who can be the leader of every single part of the country. I want to be able to bridge People's divides to be able to speak to people from very, very different opposing views, but able to find that common ground. I want to uh, to have opportunities to, and this might sound surprising. If someone wants to go into politics, but in a way, I want to, you know, tone down the amount of politics in our life as well. And you know, that's why I love things like sports or, you know. Dunkin Donuts obviously is very, is not super political. I hope it doesn't become political, (laughs) but you know, something like that, you know, food, um, we mentioned earlier, Francisco about uh, the tea festival that I'm about to be a part of, you know, something like that you get around something like tea and to be able to learn what it means in American history and whatnot, that's, that's really Mm -hmm. part of the essence of life is to know that it's not, everything is about politics and that it is a lot about, living the most satisfactory life you can um, being able to be grateful of the things that you have despite the difficult circumstances I hope that in the future when I enter public service when I enter government that I want people to at the very minimum uh, be able, not only serve I don't want just, just to serve a constituency but in general I want people to be able to you know think for themselves and to be able to vote with their feet or vote with their wallet or vote or do things that can change their localities. Um, I've had the amazing opportunity to uh, be in Nevada recently and I've actually for different reasons I've decided to move to Nevada and it's been a process over the last several months but I'm very grateful when I look back at the time I've uh, I've been in, in Sonoma County I'll never forget, I'll never forget the the beautiful nature, the people there, people like you Francisco who have given me this opportunity to be on the podcast and there's so it still goes back to those roots. You know, you can't you can't let go of them. It's part of who you are. So why not why not honor the people who have made it to made made things for you and have done things for you to get to this point. That's the kind of essence I want to be part of, you know, be someone who can embody these sort of ideas to, to be hopefully a person who can say, Oh, I, there are so many better days ahead. And I want to be just one person of that large collective effort, but it's going to take, it's going to take some time. However, I'm very hopeful through my time in in Congress and my other activities and all the projects I've, become a part of, uh, I have a lot of hope for the future of the country. And I know that there's a lot of amazing people who are ready for that. and I can't wait to to see what our generations are going to create and innovate for the future. And this is really our moment. This is our moment to bring back more civility, to bring back that human experience that face to face after two plus years of the pandemic. Um, and to forge forge ahead and to honor the past, inform the present, and to pave way for the future in American politics.
0: Absolutely, Sherman. And before we end the episode here, I just want to mention that you're named after one of the founders, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, the only founder to sign the three major documents, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, and also General William Tickham Says Sherman, who, uh, Union General, who helped end the, the Civil War. So it sounds like there's a good precedent for you to make history, Sherman. And thanks so much for, for hopefully making a little here on Hello, Sonoma. Well,
1: Francisco, thank you so much again for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you all to the audience as well for listening. And I, I hope that you've taken some value out of today's conversation. And I could not be more grateful to Francisco once again for, for having me on the program.
0: Thanks again so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Hello, Sonoma. I hope you enjoyed this patriotic-themed episode for the week of July 4th and though we've reached the end of this episode. Remember, it's not goodbye. It's Hello, Sonoma.